listening to The Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. I want to thank you for coming today. Man, I really, really do. You could have been a lot of other places, but the Holy Spirit brought you here. And your seat is occupied not by accident, but by design. Not one single thing you could have done not to have been here today. I want you to reach out and just tap your neighbor's shoulder. Say, neighbor, <laughs> let's try that one more time. <laughs> I know you can talk because I heard you during the welcome time. Just look over, just look over at them. Say, neighbor, yeah, I don't know about you, but I'm ready to learn the Word of God. Don't get in my way, or I will slap you. Hey, we're progressive Baptists, right? Hey. Well, <laughs> first, first time back in 19 years, I thought, well, let's start out light. Today we're going to talk about hell. <laughs> Brandon's over next door preaching on sex. I'm here on hell. There is no happy medium. So I want to give you a few minutes just to make your way to the exit if that's what you'd like to do. No one will laugh or stare. Um, so... There was a man in Ohio, he and his wife, the man said, well, I'm off on my business trip down to Florida. It's during the summer. And he said, tell you what, after my trip is over and related to business, why don't you come down? We just spend a few days vacationing. She said, that'd be wonderful. So he went on down there, unpacking. He said, I think I'll text my wife. And he said, hey, <clears throat> before he texted, Somehow, someway, he actually got, he accidentally got one number wrong. You ever done that? And then you hit send. Inadvertently, his text went to a lady who had attended the funeral of her husband just a few days prior. His text said, arrived safely. It is very, very hot down here. Excited about your arrival on Tuesday. <laughs> you know, I really do. I wish we could laugh and, and joke about hell, use it as nothing more than, than a word in profanity like the world does, but that's just not the case, folks. It's just not the case. I don't like teaching or preaching about hell. This was not my idea. When, when uh, Brandon uh, called me a week or so ago, said, hey man, could you fill in on the 7th? Sure, and I began praying about what to talk about, what to teach. It was completely different than this. And God said two words, warn them. That's what he said. Well, I debated with God. You ever done that? God, have you, ever, have you lost your ever-loving mind? He said, no, warn them. After a little argument, I said, yes, sir. So that's why we're going there today. Now, while you're finding John chapter 7, whether you are looking at real pages or something on your device, John chapter 7, and can I encourage you to do something? Never, ever take for granted what a preacher is telling you. Never. I could get up there, up here, and tell you a half-truth, and a half-truth is still a whole lie. Am I right about it? So you study and examine the Scriptures to make sure what we're teaching is true. There's biblical precedent for this, man. In, in uh, Acts 17, it said the Bereans examined the Scriptures daily to make sure what Paul taught 
was true. Man, you keep us accountable always. So as you're finding John chapter 7, let me say a few words in introduction. Spurgeon said, I will not preach a soft gospel. Jesus did not preach a soft gospel. Paul did not preach a soft gospel. And folks, today I will not preach a soft gospel. And that's exactly what's happening in the world today. There's a softening, a lightening, a more of a joke about hell, right? One man said the doctrine of hell is so solemn that man's natural instinct is either to ignore it or deny it. It's just easier not thinking about it. Vincent Cunningham, writing for the New Yorker, advocated for a lenient gospel. Everybody wants a nice Jesus, but I'm going to tell you something, folks. Rome didn't execute people for being nice. Jesus preached a hard gospel, a true gospel. There's a reason the good news is called good news. Well, it strongly suggests that there must be bad news. So to get to the good news, we've got to every now and then kind of remember the bad news. UNC professor Bart Ehrman, an agnostic with atheistic leanings, wrote an article for Time magazine titled, What Jesus Really Said About Heaven and Hell. Now, I don't know where he got his information. I've seen him debate other Christians from time to time. But placing Jesus on a level with Socrates, Ehrman writes, and I quote, the torments of hell were not preached by either Jesus or his original Jewish followers. I don't know where he's got his information. It surely wasn't from the Bible because 85% of the time hell is mentioned in the New Testament, it's directly from the lips of Jesus Christ. But it gets even more disconcerting. In their book, Hell Under Fire, Christopher Moran and Robert Peterson wrote, quote, attacks on the historic doctrine of hell that used to come from without the church are now coming from within. I don't know if you've done any study on what's called progressive Christianity. Basically, it's a softening of Jesus Christ, a softening of hell. Everything that we don't like. Folks, listen, some things are true whether we want to believe it or not, right? Rob Bell years ago wrote a book titled Love Wins, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. He described the biblical concept of hell as misguided and toxic. One theologian called Bell's book theologically disastrous. Why? Because Bell pastored a good, solid church for 13 years. And because biblical illiteracy is at an alarming rate, biblical illiteracy meaning that people just don't know their Bible, man. We spend hours and hours and hours online, and then we just take the preacher's word for it, right? That's why it's important that we are rightly dividing the Word of God. When Paul wrote that to Timothy, it was for all of us, not just the hired guns. And so people are swallowing whole what Bell wrote and what he preached. In John 7, 33 through 35, Jesus is once again being tested by the religious leaders. And that's a comical thing, isn't it? You ever tried to outsmart God? Never turns out well. But he looked at the religious leaders and he said in verse 33 of John chapter 7, I am with you for only a short time. And then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, 
where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? In other words, that statement, and Jesus said several, that statement that he made really stuck with them, and I want it to stick with us today. Before I get into this, though, I had been in an ongoing conversation with an agnostic from California for some time, since last November. And they were asking the hard questions. And they're pretty certain, no, very certain, that they're right and I'm wrong. Or let me put it this way, that they're right and the Bible is wrong. And one of the objections they had was, you can't prove to me that there's life after life. No, I can't. But you can't prove to me there is no life after life. Because we begin talking about the metaphysical, the supernatural, that which is outside the purview of science, we've now moved out of science into what is called philosophy and theology. So if someone assures you there's no life after life, just remind them they have no proof. In fact, <clears throat> this sort of mentality, this philosophy, is as old as the ancient philosopher Epicurus. Epicurean philosophy is simply that we're born, we die, and then we're no more. There's nothing more to it. Dust to dust, God said in Genesis 3, but my friends, he's talking about the physical body, not the immaterial soul. It was Dr. Andy Bannister who rightly asserted the claim only science can discover truth is self-refuting, as the statement itself cannot be verified using science. Richard Swinburne, professor of philosophy at the University of Oxford, in his book, Are We Bodies or Souls, was summed up mostly by the former atheist C.S. Lewis, who said, you don't have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. So what does the Bible say about life after life? Well, the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 9, 27, and for those at home, I will be citing each and every biblical reference. He wrote, and just as it is appointed and destined for all men to die once, and after this comes certain judgment. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. To a grieving Martha in John 11.25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. That person who believes in me will live even if they die. My friends, those of us who have loved ones who have died in faith, they're more alive today than they've ever been now. And those who have died without faith in Christ are more alive than they've ever been. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And then John recorded in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the Word of God. You can believe Epicurean philosophy all you want. I'm going to go with the Word of God on this. So what does the Bible tell us about hell? We're going to get to John chapter 7, but I want to set that up. My friends, hell did not originate with Dante. Erwin Lutzer, pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, said this, to discover what really lies on the other side of death, we must find a more credible authority than television and movies. We will do much better if we trust someone who was actually dead. Christ is the only one who is qualified to tell us what to expect on the other side. Here is someone whose opinion can be trusted. Every New Testament author addresses the concept of future judgment 
in hell. And there are three overriding biblical themes about this place we call hell. Jesus described hell as outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 8, 12. In Matthew 18, 8, he describes it as eternal fire. In Matthew 25, 46, eternal punishment. In Mark 9, 43, where the fire never goes out. And then in Mark 9, 47 and 48, where the worms that eat them do not die. The New Testament writers describe hell as a place of suffering and eternal judgment. Now, it's interesting that our human natures are drawn to the good passages, the easy passages, the passages that we want to believe, and nothing more. You know John 3, 16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But did you know in verse 18, it says, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed on the name of God's one and only Son, Jesus Christ. We love Romans 5, 8 and 9, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and since we have now been justified by His blood, here's the rest of that, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? Now, that word saved is used often throughout the New Testament. Folks, today, I'm here to remind you and to warn you what you're saved from. Hell is a place of conscious suffering. There are those who will tell you that hell is a place where we are annihilated, or those without faith in Christ when they die are annihilated. In other words, they suffer for a little time, and then they're gone. So it's not a place of conscious eternal punishment. But again, the Bible contradicts this. Hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment. In Luke 16, where Jesus tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man went to hell not because he was rich, but because he rejected faith in Jesus Christ. And so the rich man and Lazarus are very much alive in the afterlife, with the rich man even describing the torment he was experiencing bodily. We'll get back to him. Hell is also a place of eternal punishment. There's no annihilation according to the Bible. Jesus said at the end of his parable about the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, which is the longest recorded answer to any single question Jesus was asked when the disciples said, what will be the signs of your coming? If you have a red-letter version of the Scriptures, there are a lot of red letters in chapter 24 and 25 of the Gospel of Matthew. But Jesus said, so the people will go who have professed Christ into <clears throat> eternal life, and others will go away into eternal punishment. Augustine, the 4th century church father, said, so it follows necessarily that either both are taken as temporary or both as endless. So we can't proclaim that life in heaven is forever and come away thinking somehow, some way, that life in hell is only temporary, according to Jesus. In Revelation 14, three angels are dispatched to announce terrifying warnings. One of the angels in Revelation 14, 10 through 11, says those who reject faith in Christ will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented, this person, 
with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest. So the first overriding biblical theme is punishment. The second is destruction, ongoing judgment. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, he described it as eternal destruction. In Romans 3.23, Paul said the wages of sin is death. It is eternal death. And then Peter wrote in his second letter, chapter 3, verse 7, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And here is one that I that we'll get to again in John 7. Banishment. We have punishment, destruction, and then banishment. In Matthew 7, 23, Jesus said, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, banishment is stronger than separation. We tend to think of hell as separation from God, and that is true but there are other nuances according to Jesus' own words. Banishment also stresses the dreadfulness and finality of the situation. There is no second chance. There's no invitation at some kind of quasi-sermon in hell where we get a second chance. There is no such thing as purgatory either, the Catholic doctrine. You can look up my blog at nickwatsoulfood.com and plug in purgatory and see all about that and how that originated in the corrupt medieval Roman Catholic Church. There is no waiting room where somehow we get out later on. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. So what about these near-death experiences? Now we hear them all the time in regard to those people who have seen the bright light, right? The warm feeling, I felt love like nothing ever before. Books by Bill Wise, on the other hand, called 23 Minutes in Hell. What do we do with these books written by these people? Heaven is for real. It was made into a movie a few years back. Some of them line up with Scripture pretty darn well. Others, not so much. Some are very nebulous and vague. Always, always, always weigh the stories that were told against the truth of Scripture. Always. We can't afford to stray even a little bit from what we know to be true, God's Word. In other words, other words Satan is a smooth operator, man. You got Adam and Eve who walked with God daily, right? They still allow the serpent to slither into the garden. Interesting, when we arrive at Genesis 3 an interesting thing because we pick it up as though Eve and the serpent are in mid-conversation. There's no telling how long that relationship and that conversation has been going on. Satan is a brilliant deceiver. He'll deceive the whole planet if it were not for God's protection. And so in that light, he'll say, go ahead and believe in hell, but I'm going to confuse you as to what the truth really says. A half-truth is still a whole lie. Am I right about it? So we've heard the phrase, I've been to hell and back, Dr. Maurice Rawlings, cardiologist and clinical assistant professor of medicine for the University of Tennessee at Chicago. He was a personal physician at the Pentagon for the Joint Chiefs of Staff as well as governor 
for the American College of Cardiology for the state of Tennessee. This is no lazy intellectual. Dr. Rawlings shares the scene of a particular surgery on a heart patient with a pacemaker. In Rawlings' words, and I quote, Blood was spurting everywhere. Whenever I stopped pushing on his chest in order to adjust the pacemaker, the heart would stop. And the patient's eyes would roll up in his head. He would again sputter, turn blue, and begin to convulse. With bare hands, I would reach over to start him up again. But this time, he was screaming the words, Don't stop! I'm in hell! I am in hell! Rawlings thought it was mere hallucinations. But these experiences continued. So in 1993, these experiences prompted him to write a book titled To Hell and Back to balance the many near-death experiences based on the heavenly I saw the light type of near-death experiences. He began interviewing patients. He concluded that there are fewer stories of being in hell because if you wait longer than a few minutes after the experiences, the trauma is suppressed. I don't know if you've been in a horrible car wreck or some other trauma, but it is quite common that you don't remember the events surrounding the actual events because of the trauma that is suppressed. They just don't remember. But he began compiling stories of those who did remember. Here is one. George Godkin related a near-death experience. His words, quote, I was guided to a place in the spirit world called hell. This is a place of punishment for all of those who reject Jesus Christ. I not only saw hell, but felt the torment that all who go there will experience. The darkness of hell is so intense that it seems to have a pressure per square inch. It is an extremely black, dismal, desolate, heavy, pressurized type of darkness. It gives the individual a crushing, despondent feeling of loneliness. I'll never forget a friend of mine in high school said, I can't wait to go to hell where I can party with all my friends. Folks, there's going to be no party. The heat is a dry, dehydrating type, Godwin goes on. Your eyeballs are so dry they feel like red-hot coals in their sockets. Your tongue and lips are parched and cracked with intense heat. The breath from your nostrils, as well as the air you breathe, feels like a blast from a furnace. (laughs) Worse than what we have been doing every afternoon since what seems like the beginning of the summer, right? The agony and loneliness of hell cannot be expressed clearly enough for proper understanding to the human soul, end quote. Now, I chose to include this single story because everything God can share is in line with Scripture. Punishment, torment, darkness, loneliness, heat and agony, all of which are cited specifically in the Gospels. One writer wrote, there's no way to describe hell. Nothing on earth can compare with it. No living person has any real idea of it. No madman in his wildest flights of insanity ever beheld its horror. No man in delirium ever pictured a place so utterly terrible as this. No nightmare racing across a fevered mind ever produced a terror to match the mildest hell. No murder scene ever suggested a revulsion that could touch the borderlands of hell. The Bible says hell is real, a place of darkness and unspeakable suffering that never ends. But now we come back to John chapter 7 and look at one last truth to which I'd like to direct your attention. 
Hell is truly a truth discovered too late. In verse 34 of John chapter 7, Jesus said, You will look for me, but will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. So what does he mean by this? This statement that, that grabbed the attention so much of the f- religious leaders that they actually quoted back to him the same thing. My friends, the meaning is simple. Jesus is saying, there will come a time when you will look for me, and I won't be there. I'll let that hang in the air for just a moment. We see this elsewhere in Scripture in Isaiah 55, 6. Isaiah prophesied, seek the Lord while he may be found. Here it is, folks. Hell is not where Christ is forgotten. It is where he is unavailable. You ever had regret? I have been crippled with regret before. Decisions, foolish decisions I've made in the past. We can't delete it, can we? Like off of our devices. It will always be there, and it will always torment us. After rejection, after rejection, Jesus is issuing a terrifying warning. Hell is itself a truth discovered too late. Jesus makes this message terrifyingly clear. You will look for me, but you will not find me. We know the Bible tells us that hell is eternal damnation and suffering, but Jesus gives us another nuance here. Hell is also eternal regret without Remedy, at least on this side of the grave, man, as a, as a believer in Jesus Christ, we can mess up, we can mess up bad with lasting physical earthly consequences. But at least, <laughs> as we saying, I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Am I right about it? Our slate is clean, right? Even on our worst days. We are 100% holy, 100% righteous in the sight of a mighty God. Because when he looks at us, he doesn't look on us. He looks on his son, Jesus Christ. This is what Paul meant when he wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You are 100% holy, 100% righteous in the sight of the judge. In hell, Jesus is saying we'll have everlasting remorse without hope. You will look for me, but will not find me. In Luke chapter 16, in that story of the rich man and Lazarus, after they go to hell, there is no intermediate state. I remember sitting in a conference with uh, Tony Campolo, one of the great sociologists of our time. He is a believer. So me and a ton of other youth pastors are sitting there. I'm actually on the floor looking up at him because there are no chairs to be had. It is packed. And he said, look, we are in a post-Christian nation. In other words, Christianity is no longer the default faith. Uh, The Bible is no longer just automatically respected. He said, so that's gone. However, we are a deeply spiritual nation. I'd agree with that. Man, we got so many ghost hunters, ghost adventures, ghost this, ghost that. People are drawn to it. You know why they're ubiquitous? Because people are eating that alive. They, most folks know there's something beyond here. There's something beyond the physical, known as the metaphysical. But those ghosts, they're not ghosts. Those are demons, man. The Bible's clear. 
There is no intermediate state. And so Jesus said, they died and the rich man went to hell, and he said, in Hades, hell, being in torment. Torment, unlike torture, is living with the consequences of our own bad choices. Torment is the anguish that results from realizing we chose foolishly. Everyone in hell will know that the torment they eternally suffer is from their own choosing, and there will be no way to fix it. That's why there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, because they will cry out for Jesus. They will search for him, fix this, but he will not come ever. So how do I bring this to a close? That person I mentioned earlier with whom I've had this ongoing conversation, and I have a number of these conversations going on. I, I love to visit with people about the hard questions of the Christian faith. I, listen, I'm not into this bumper sticker theology stuff. I know what pain is. I lost a dad to alcoholism, a younger sister to drug abuse. This tattoo on my arm says, the Lord is my shepherd, because that's the only Bible verse that helped me not go insane when my son took his life. Listen, I, I, I don't just stand here swallowing whole everything about the Christian faith because the preacher said it's true or grandma said it's true, man. I want you to know I believe this because I've studied it, I've examined it, I've weighed it against every other worldview on this planet. This makes the most sense of reality, man. I believe it is true with all of my heart. Nothing else makes sense. Yeah, man, the Christian faith is a faith worldview, but so is every other worldview. A naturalistic worldview is a faith worldview because they have faith. There is nothing on the other side. I don't have that much faith, man. I don't have enough faith to believe anything other than the good news of Jesus Christ. So my friend, with whom I'd been talking for some time online, the conversation ended a couple of weeks ago. It broke my heart. They said, I'm glad you like being a Christian and that you found your faith. It is just ne definitely not for me. And then they ended with this sentence, I'd rather live in the unknown and take my chances in hell. Don't do that. Even the French atheist philosopher Albert Camus said, I'd rather live as if God exists and die to find he doesn't than live as if he doesn't and die to find out that he does. <clears throat> In 1729... America's most famous philosopher, Jonathan Edwards, was graduating from Yale University. He would then go on to follow in the footsteps of his father and pastor the First Church of Northampton, Massachusetts. Now, it had only been a few um, generations since the Puritans came over to the New World and the Christian faith began to spread. 
But by this time, religious fervor had waned. Most people were indifferent. Not necessarily opposed to it, just apathy, complacency, just like today. But then, in the mid-1730s, God would use Edwards to ignite what history calls the first great awakening. Thousands of people throughout New England were being saved, coming to Christ. The Holy Spirit was just breaking hearts, man. Thousands of people. However, in Enfield, Connecticut, there was one church whose congregation's hearts remained cold and hard. The pastor loved those people. They'd preach his heart out every single week, but nothing, nothing. So he contacted Edwards and said, could you please find the time? God is using you. Could you please find the time to come and preach to my congregation? So he did. And on July 8th, 1941, almost three centuries ago, Edwards stood in that pulpit and preached the never-to-be-forgotten sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I've read every word. In one of the biographies of Jonathan Edwards, the biographer was able to actually acquire notes, eyewitness notes from that service. Here's what the note said. The response of the people in that service was nothing short of amazing. Many of the people attending that service and hearing that sermon testified that they could feel the heat of the flames of hell licking about their pew. And then he said, Edwards was interrupted time and time again by people moaning and crying out, what must I do to be saved? Well, Paul was asked that same question by the Philippian jailer. And here was his answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Have you never placed your faith in the one who can save you? Please do that. If you haven't, what are you waiting for? In the words of the 17th century mathematician, Blaise Pascal, don't wager against this. Jesus said, whoever believes in me is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in me is condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's only Son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray. After I pray, there's going to be a song. We're not having the old traditional uh, invitation. But there are going to be people in the back who are ready to visit with you. I'm going to be right here ready to visit with you if you want to talk about anything. Let's pray. Now, God, I still don't know why you wanted me to talk about this today, but God, I trust you. I trust that there's someone somewhere, God, who needed to hear this. You know everything. I know almost nothing. So God, I trust you. And Father, I pray for those people who are either here or watching online. And God, if there is anyone who has never 
believed on your name that today would be the day that right now would be the time of their salvation. God, thank you that we know better what the word saved means. Thank you that we know better what the phrase good news means. And I ask you, God, please, please, God, that hearts would be soft and pliable and receptive. And then, Lord, for anything else, for those who are hurting, remind them, Lord, that you're close to the brokenhearted and you save those who are crushed in spirit. And for those, God, fighting a battle, remind them, Lord, the battle is the Lord's. And for those who are caught in a time of hard decisions, remind them For wisdom, all we have to do is ask because you give that to us generously. Whatever it may be, God, may we leave this place unlike how we came in, closer to you, a better understanding of you, a boldness, a fearlessness. And then those of us, God, finally, I need to, I need to stop. But God, those of us finally who know somebody who've never placed their faith in you. God, before we talk to them, may we pray for them. We know, God, before we talk to someone about Jesus, we need to talk to Jesus about them. But God, help us set up that divine appointment and may no one anywhere say, I'll just take my chances with hell. This is our prayer in the name of Christ and on the authority of his shed blood. And all God's people said, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcasts. To learn more about the venue at Southcrest, visit us online at southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church. 